All right, good morning, everyone. Um, we need to, I didn't bring this up earlier, but there were uh, two bombings this morning in Egypt at Christian churches when Christians gathered to observe Palm Sunday. I know the Coptic Christian church is one of the oldest uh, branches of Christianity going back to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Now, I know the Coptics have gotten real traditional and liturgical like the Catholics in a lot of ways, and those churches aren't filled with genuine born-again believers anymore, but there are true believers over there. And while we gather with freedom today to worship the Lord, uh, there are others who have gathered today, and some of them never went home. I think two churches were bombed by terrorists, and multiple people were killed this morning. I don't know if those people were killed or were genuine believers or not, but the Bible tells us to remember those who are persecuted and not take for granted the freedoms we have. So it concerned me greatly that this happened, and... Uh, it concerned me that our president tweets about a whole lot of stuff, but there was no tweets about that. And here he's supposed to care about Christians in the Middle East, and that really bothered me this morning. But while we were sitting there singing that last song, he tweeted about it. So praise God he at least mentioned it. But um, don't put your faith in politicians. Um, they, they, they claim a lot of things to get our votes. Um, I'm happy with the fact that I didn't have to pay a health care penalty this year. I'm happy about the fact that I don't have to listen to that witch talk every day on the TV. Those are things to be happy about. I'm happy that at least by what he says, our president's not an enemy of the Christian church. Um, and an enemy of my enemies is by virtue my friend. Uh, ask the Jews about that going back to the days of King Cyrus or King Nebuchadnezzar. But we do need to pray for our president that the Lord would protect him from ungodly influences. There's a lot of people in, 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 in that cesspool that's Washington, D.C. that would want to turn him away from the things he at least said when he ran for office. But don't put your hope in politicians. The history's already been written. You see, the Bible's a giant bear trap. You know, it's written history ahead of time. It's given warnings. It's said things. And the very people that hate the Bible, that want to tell us it's just a fairy tale and it can't be trusted, are going to be the very ones that make foolish decisions that they think they're making to fulfill exactly what the Bible says word for word. So they themselves, who hate the Bible, become the instruments whereby it's fulfilled. And the bear, the bear trap snaps shut. Let God be true and every man a liar. So let's just pray for those Christians who suffer around the world. Let's pray that God brings that to the, to the mind of our president. I'm thankful that he proved me wrong a few minutes ago and at least had something to say about it in the public forum. But um, don't put your trust in politicians. We are to pray for those who are in leadership over us, but don't put your trust in them. Don't put your trust in people in the church either. We have to put our trust in the Lord. So let's just remember that this morning. Pray for those who suffer persecution. Those days may be coming to us. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready and we need to be resolved. Um, turn, turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 14. When I think about, I know Palm Sunday is just a, a holiday on a, on a church calendar. And it goes back to the Catholic calendar. Okay, I understand that. But Palm Sunday, historically, was the Sunday prior to our Lord's crucifixion. Whereby He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of detailed prophecy in the Old Testament. 
The prophet Zechariah, writing four or five hundred years before Christ, spoke in detail about these things. And when I think about Palm Sunday um, in the month of Nisan, A.D. 30, I think about a prophecy in the Bible that's so important because it lays out human history looking forward in terms of God's plan and purpose for Israel. It involved their rejection of Him and by virtue includes God's plan and purpose for the church. And it tells us in the prophet Daniel about 600 years before Christ that know therefore from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. Daniel prophesied that from the going forth of a specific commandment not to rebuild the temple, but to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, 69 weeks of years would transpire until Messiah the Prince. And if you go back and look at history and see how that commandment was given by the king in the, pro in the book of Nehemiah, and you realize that this king was sitting on his father's throne because his father went insane after losing a battle to the Greeks and couldn't rule anymore, basically retired to a life of parties and orgies, and his son had to sit on the throne and rule in his place until he died, and then he became king. When you look at all the history there and all the divine providences, you see that this king gave a commandment in 454 B.C. to Nehemiah on the 14th of Nisan, Passover. That's why Nehemiah was so sad. And then exactly 69 weeks of years later, 483 years, Palm Sunday, A.D. 30, Messiah the Prince rode into Jerusalem. It was the only time in Christ's life when the people in unity, the people, not the religious leaders, Christ didn't come to call the righteous, He came to call the secular to repentance. Even today when you go to Israel and preach the gospel, it's the secular that will give you an ear and not the religious people that think they've got it all figured. That's always been that way, all the way back to the days of Moses. But when he rode into that city, they recognized him there as a prince. And prophecy was fulfilled. And then we're told that immediately after Messiah the Prince, after those, four, those 69 weeks of years, two things would happen. Messiah would be cut off. So right there in the prophet Daniel, we're told that they would reject their Messiah. He'd be cut off, and then the people of the prince that would come would destroy the city. And we know that the Romans did that in A.D. 70. And then, we're in, then God's prophetic clock for Israel came to a stop, and God did a new thing. Not a new thing, it was prophesied from day one when He told Abraham and him all the nations would be blessed. He's built up His church. Palm Sunday was important, not because the Catholic Church puts it on a calendar, and not even because of the little story there in the Gospels. It's important because it was detailed, fulfilled prophecy. Exactly what God said would happen, happened 483 years later. Now, show me a place in the Quran where the prophet was able to prophesy about anything that wasn't already talked about in the Bible. Nothing. There's no prophet and Muhammad together in one label is a great giant oxymoron. He never prophesied about anything that he didn't plagiarize from the scriptures. But God's word prophesies detail. And Palm Sunday is proof of that. Jesus was cut off exactly the day after 483 calendar years. Nehemiah was addressed by the king on Passover. 454 B.C., and it was on Passover that Christ in fulfillment of that feast was crucified, A.D. 30, the very next day. So it wasn't just solar years, it was calendar years as well. He was crucified on the feast of Passover. He was put in the ground 
fulfilling the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then on first fruits, He was risen from the dead. So these things are important because they demonstrate that God does exactly what He says He's going to do. He doesn't waver. It may not be the way we think it's going to happen, but when it's all said and done, we see God's Word is true. Every detail of it. And Palm Sunday's proof of that. Christ was received as a prince. When He was coming into town and the people were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Pharisees and the self-righteous said, you need to shut them up. Look, this is blasphemy. And then Christ said one of the things that I think was one of We always talk about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He said some pretty bold things when He preached. Buzzwords. And one of those is right there. He told those religious leaders, if these people stop, even the very stones will cry out. Identifying Himself with Messiah. When He quoted before the high priest, tell us, are you the Messiah? He said, you say it, but I'm going to tell you this, the day's coming when you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That was bold. He was quoting what every Jew understands to be talking about the Messiah and applying it to Himself. So make no mistake, Jesus was bold. We need to be bold in these days. But God does exactly what He says He's going to do in this book of Revelation. We may have difficulty understanding parts of it, but we don't need to assign it to uh, some kind of spiritual analogy. We don't need to assign it to history. We don't need to brush it aside because it's prophecy. We need to approach it understanding that God fulfills His Word exactly like He says He's going to do. It amazes me how people want to say that Revelation and the second, second coming of Christ is all allegorical fulfillment, but yet they'll point to His first advent and say that He fulfilled everything literally. And they'll use these examples of fulfilled prophecy in His first advent to argue apologetics with the unbelieving. Well, how is it that Christ would fulfill everything literally at His first coming and not at His second coming? When the two comings are spoken of as one in the Old Testament. We can trust God's Word. We can trust that... I'm not telling you to entrust my interpretation, but you can trust God's Word and that when it's all said and done, we'll see that God did exactly what He said He was going to do. And that is a, a testimony of that is Palm Sunday. Fulfilled prophecy. Detailed fulfilled prophecy. It's exactly what differentiates God and His Word from man-made religion. People can make all sorts of claims. There's people out here that prophesy all sorts of things that don't come true. And people follow Him anyway. It's amazing. God's Word doesn't change. That's why Israel's not been consumed. Despite their rejection, despite their false religion, and make no mistake, rabbinic Judaism is wicked. It's not biblical Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism is as different from Old Testament Bible as Catholicism is from New Testament Gospel. But the fact that God doesn't change is why Israel itself hasn't been consumed. The fact that God doesn't change is why we still have a church today despite how much apostasy there is. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm known for very long introductions and I apologize for that. Let's go back to Revelation 14. I've been here in um, verses 6 and 7 as we've progressed exegetically through this book Going back to January of 2013, we come to places where we need to stop and look at what the Scripture says in other areas. Citing other Scriptures, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And we have here in verse 7, 6 and 7, John seeing this angel fly through heaven preaching the everlasting gospel. And then verse 7 goes on to tell us what that everlasting gospel is. 
And there's no mention there of the cross. There's no mention there of the blood. What's mentioned is God is Creator. Worship Him because the day of His wrath has come. Well, so here we see the word gospel, but we don't see anything about the cross. And so what we've been talking about is what I believe are four forms of the gospel that we see in the Scriptures. Sometimes they're spoken of differently. Sometimes they're spoken together like in Colossians chapter 1. But the gospel, please understand, at the heart of it is Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. But please understand that it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It doesn't stop there. There are four forms of the gospel in terms of what is emphasized about the gospel message. Just like we have four pictures of Jesus Christ and His life in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not different accounts that contradict each other. They don't cover all the same details. John said, if we would have written about everything that Christ did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to fill it, to contain it. But each author, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasized different aspects of Christ's life. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus Christ is presented primarily as the King of Israel, the Messiah who fulfills prophecy related to Israel. Jesus is the King. Mark, Jesus, short and sweet. Mark, Jesus Christ, the servant, the Savior who came to die for mankind. Emphasized. The Gospel of Luke, Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man who came to build His church. And then John, of course, emphasizes His deity. Jesus Christ as Creator God. Not that the others don't discuss these things as well, but the emphases are different. They give us a full picture. Not a single person's account, but a full picture. That's why we can trust the Bible. More than 40 authors on three different continents over a 1,500-year period writing down God's words, a progressive unfolding of revelation that doesn't contradict itself. The Quran was just the rantings of one man who came under a trance and would foam at the mouth and would act like an animal and then they'd lay a sheet over him until he calmed down and then he'd just start reciting stuff that came to his mouth. And oftentimes when he recited, it didn't even sound like his own voice. Usually when somebody starts speaking and it's not their own voice because there's a demon inside of them. I've seen it with my own eyes. And we want to say that that's on par with the Scriptures. That's like putting an anthill beside Mount Everest. But these things show God's Word to be true. And there are four forms of the Gospel. The everlasting Gospel is one of those forms. And so it's behooved us to step aside as we've been talking about this victory campaign and the great war between the woman and the dragon that's introduced in chapter 12. Satan from time immemorial has hated the seed of the woman that was prophesied there in the garden. Satan has done everything to stop God from fulfilling His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the children of Israel. And there's an enemy of Satan, whether you know, in terms of God's election, that he hates just as much as he hates the church. And that's the people of Israel. There's coming a time when Christ will take His church out. And then all of the hatred of Satan will be turned toward destroying the people of Israel so that Christ cannot... Return. It says in Hosea that he won't return until his people acknowledge their transgression and call for him. It's very clear. And Satan's going to do everything in his power to stop it. Satan's foolishness is he thinks he actually can. And the book of Job teaches us otherwise. The oldest book in the Bible. He can't. This isn't good versus evil. God sits up here. 
The good versus evil is only in Satan's mind. It's only in our mind. God's already written it. But um, we're in the midst of that, and so we're pausing to talk about four forms of the gospel. I talked about the first form, which is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news that God purposes to set up a literal earthly kingdom whereby the Messiah of Israel, a son of David, a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will sit on a literal throne and rule the world in righteousness and do what mankind has never been able to done going back to Adam. Righteousness, the gospel of the kingdom. It's got a distinctively Jewish element because at the center of it is the nation of Israel. And Messiah's throne, His throne, just what was prophesied to uh, uh, Mary by the angel Gabriel. And it's what Jesus and His disciples preached, the gospel of the kingdom. It's not a different gospel. Then we talked about the gospel of the grace of God that Paul speaks of in Acts chapter 20 that Paul was sent out to preach. It was, he was sent out to preach. It went to the Gentiles. The nation of Israel could have had the kingdom, but they rejected it. They were given one final chance there at Stephen's preaching to receive the kingdom. Christ had to die and be rejected and be buried and risen again. That had to happen. They were given an opportunity and Paul was standing there watching. Jesus was standing up beside the throne not to welcome Stephen home. He was standing up to return, but they rejected him. And he sat back down. And then God scattered Israel to the ends of the earth. But the the gospel went to the Gentiles. It was always in God's plan. The prophecies of Messiah in the book of Isaiah said it was an easy thing for Him to be Messiah of the Jews. He would be a light to the Gentiles as well. So all of this was in God's plan. And so the gospel of the grace of God is the good news that Jesus was rejected, but in being rejected, He paid the price for our sins on a Roman cross for our salvation. It's the gospel of the grace of God that we emphasize when we go out and preach to the lost on the streets. That in Jesus Christ we can have grace. And that grace can reign in our hearts. And we can have forgiveness. And in coming into the body of Christ, we're part of the kingdom that one day will come. The literal kingdom. When the kingdom of heaven, physical, and the kingdom of God within us become one. And then we get to the third form of the gospel. You can go back and listen to these messages. I'm going to try to get them up. And again, please understand, this is not three types of gospels or three different gospels. It's forms of the gospel. And when we preach, we ought to not be ashamed to emphasize all of them. I'm preaching the gospel of God's grace and how to be saved. Why in these last days would I not speak of this Jesus as one who's coming again to set up a kingdom? For us as Christians, Paul goes further. Turn to Romans 2.16. And again, this discussion is necessitated by the reference to the everlasting gospel there in Revelation 14. Is it a different message? No. Is it a different emphasis? Perhaps. But it's all one if we understand who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't just a king of Israel born to sit on a throne. He was also the Savior of all men. But he's also the head of the church. And this is the third form of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 2.16, he's talking about the Gentiles that don't have the law, who by nature, they weren't given the commandments on tables of stone, but by nature they do the things contained in the law, and therefore they show the work of the law written on their hearts, because their conscience bears witness. Every man's heard from God. 
This idea that there may be people that don't know the gospel, never heard about Jesus, but every man on this planet in the deepest, darkest jungle to the highest mountain has heard from God. He's heard from God through the voice of creation. Only a fool says in his heart there's no God. He's heard from God in the work of sin, in the consequences of sin. Death is all around. It tells us there's a problem between the Creator and the creation. Every man's heard that. We've all heard from God through our conscience. The problem is personal because God gave His law to us written on our hearts. And that's what the point Paul is making here. And then he goes on to verse 16. It's a big, huge parenthesis. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So he makes a reference here to what he calls my gospel. And to help you understand what this is talking about, think about World War II. When we, we read about the history of World War II, we divide it into two main theaters and we think about battles that took place primarily where? Where are the two places we think about? Japan, the Pacific Theater, and Europe, Germany, the European Theater, right? But we call it World War II. Did you realize that there was a lot that went on during World War II outside of Europe and the Pacific? Did you realize that there was fighting in Burma, Southeast Asia? That the Japanese marched across China? It wasn't just Pacific Islands. They marched across China and the British and the Australians sent troops and they were fighting in the jungles of Burma. Did you realize there was fighting in North Africa? There was fighting in Palestine? Italy? In fact, Jim's dad was an American soldier that went to Italy and was part of the invasion of Italy that marched up and easily dispensed of the Italians and Mussolini's troops. But we don't ever read about that. So there was more to World War II than Europe and the Pacific. And in fact, if some of these things hadn't happened to distract the attention of the Japanese and the Germans, we wouldn't have had victory in those other two theaters. It was much bigger than that. The same is the case with the Gospel. The Gospel message in its fullness for us, the church, is much bigger than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ didn't save us and build His church so that's all we would be as static individuals who believe on Christ and just go about living our lives. The Gospel is bigger than that. When Paul is referring to my Gospel and we see this emphasis in other places in his epistles, this is the same thing as the Gospel of salvation or the Gospel of God's grace with the additional revelations made known to Paul and revealed in his epistles concerning the church. So the emphasis of my gospel that Paul's referring to is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the grace of God with the additional revelations that Paul gave as instruction for the building up of the church. Christ died to say in, but that's not where it stopped. He died and built a church. He died, rose again, a perfect sacrifice so that He could come again and be a perfect King to fulfill promises. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul made additional revelation, was given additional revelation in his epistles. When we read the Scriptures, we need to understand that Scriptures were written to specific people. That doesn't mean that all Scripture is not applicatory. That's the glory of the Scriptures. It doesn't matter if the prophet's writing to disobedient Israel. 
800 years before Christ, we can read it and make application to our lives. Paul tells us twice in the New Testament that everything that was written was written for our admonition and it was written for our comfort. So everything's applicatory. But we can't deny the audience. In Paul's epistles, who is he writing to? The church. He's writing to us specifically. Just like in Revelation 2 and 3, those letters are addressed to the church. That means we ought to be given special attention to what's being said there. Too many times Christians make the mistake of filtering all of Paul's epistles to us, the church, through the Sermon on the Mount. Forgetting that the Sermon on the Mount was preached to Jews and it was a constitution that looked forward to how things are going to run in Christ's kingdom. This is going to be our constitution. This is the way it's going to be. Doesn't mean there's not application. Doesn't mean it doesn't reveal to us the heart of God. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't go out and do the things Christ says. But it's interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, if you forgive men, then God will forgive you. But Paul tells us we forgive because we've been forgiven. Is there a contradiction there? No. Why? Because there was an audience. And you have to take that in consideration. We as the church ought to give special attention to Paul's epistles. There's too many people running around out here that think the red letters, which were inserted by men, sometimes they get them messed up in the Gospel of John where they say it's Christ speaking and it could be, it really looks more like John the Baptist speaking, but it doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit wrote all of it anyway. But they want to act like the Gospels have more authority than the book of Romans or First and Second Corinthians. That's ludicrous. It's all God's Word. And we would do well to pay special attention to those parts that are written directly to us. And the epistles are written to the church, primarily today made up of Gentiles, to give us instruction about how to be a part of building up that church and shining as lights in a dark world. But we don't pay attention to it. That's why we got churches today acting like it's okay to have homosexual marriages and look like the world because half of these preachers have never even cracked open one of Paul's epistles to say to read what's being said to us and they don't care. Jesus told His disciples that the Holy Spirit would come and He would bring to your remembrance everything you've seen and He would tell you about things to come. So Jesus Himself said these things would be written and we ought to pay attention to them. So my gospel is the gospel with the additional revelations given concerning the church. The church's organization, its purpose, its ministries, its interaction one with another and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Are those things not important? How can we just cast that all aside and say it's just about the gospel? Well, it all goes together because it's what Christ intended to do. Ephesians 3 Let's look at 17 through 19. This is the emphasis of what Paul calls my gospel that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, this faith and love is talking about our relationships one with another in the body of Christ, that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. There's no mention of the cross there. There's no mention of the blood. This is beyond that. It wasn't just to 
repent and believe and be saved, God's will for us is to, let our, is to grow in faith and love one with another. To com- comprehend not just the gospel message, but the length and the breadth and the depth and the height. And that's why Paul wrote his letters to the church. My gospel also involves the things Paul has to say in Romans 11. The relationship between Israel and the church. The natural branches and the unnatural branches. In many ways, the Jewish people are an enemy of the gospel. Absolutely an enemy of the gospel. But the Bible says that they're beloved because of the election. And for that reason, we don't need to make the same mistake Martin Luther made and get bitter and resentful. He really believed that once the truth of the gospel came out, that Jewish people living there in Germany would finally respond and come to Christ and believe He was the Messiah. He, was, he believed that once the gospel was preached apart from the popes. And he made efforts to preach the gospel to the Jewish people and they still rejected it. And he took it personal. And I can understand that. He took it personal. A little bit of a resentment there. But make no mistake, the Nazis never got any of their theology or any of their philosophy concerning the Jews. It didn't come from Martin Luther. They're just repeating what the popes had been saying for 19 centuries or 16 centuries. Nazi theology was Catholic theology and Islamic theology. There was nothing Luther about it. That's a lie that's been fed to us in history. Catholic and Islamic philosophy is where Hitler got his ideas. In fact, the, the, the Muslims in the Middle East had been saying it going back to the 1920s before Hitler's final solution ever hit the tables. The Catholic popes had been saying it going back all the way through the pogroms in the Middle Ages long before Hitler came on the scene. That was Nazism's Catholic, Catholicism and Islam. They're bed buddies anyway, historically. They've always been. They are today. Nothing's different. The church is something different. Romans 11. We're not to be high-minded. God has a plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. But right now, we've been grafted in. And we're to go preach that gospel to Jew and Gentile. Because God is building up a church. And that church is a special place. It's a privileged place. It's the bride of Christ. When you think about my gospel, and, and we could go into... Lots of passages here. I think about, it's almost like the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of the Kingdom is kind of like the picture we see in Matthew. The Gospel of the Grace of God is like the picture we see in Mark. Paul and the revelations given to him concerning the church are kind of like the picture we see in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke, Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the head of the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. Twenty-seven and twenty-eight. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church: first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles and gifts of healing, helps, government, diversities of tongues. When you read that word "tongue" in the New Testament. Just substitute the word language. It's what they were. Languages. Not she leapt on a Honda untie, hashtala shandai untie a bow tie. It's not what it ever was. Or languages. At Pentecost, it says that men gathered from all these countries, Jewish people that came to the temple to worship, heard the word of God in their own language. 
But look, here we have a body of Christ with gifts and ministries. See, that's the gospel that Paul's referring to. The gospel, his gospel. There's more to it. There's giftings. There's the building up of the church. That's part of it. Christ isn't just the King of Israel. He's not just the Savior of the world. He's the head of the church. He's the bridegroom. He's the head of the body. And with that comes all the revelation we're given in the epistles about how the church should be organized, what the ordinances of the church are, what the ministries of the church are, how we're supposed to relate one to another. The world likes to claim all these verses about love and peace and, 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 and hair grease or whatever. But, and they always talk about 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And they want to take passages that are meant to describe our relationship as brethren in Christ, one with another, and want to try to say that's the way we ought to be to sin and wickedness. And then you've got Christians that give lost people the benefit of the doubt before they give their own brothers the benefit of the doubt. That's wicked. That's not the way it should be. In the church, it's our love for one another, not our love and kissing up to the homosexual mafia, but I love one for another that's a testimony to the world. And yet we want to give lost people the benefit of the doubt over our brother and sister. Unbelievable. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. But it's important the revelation was given concerning the church, and we should preach it. We should preach the church as something other than religion. That's why it's sad to me when churches separate. You've got... Gentile churches and Jewish messianic congregations. You got white churches and black churches. You got Hispanic churches and uh, American churches. I understand language requires that sometimes, linguistic barriers, but it shouldn't be that way. The church shouldn't be separated according to racial and cultural boundaries. That's what religion does. Islam is one of the most racist religions on the planet. And Muslims of different classes hate each other just as much as they hate Jews and Christians. Because it's racist. Hinduism the same way. I've known high caste Hinduisms that'll treat Hindus that'll treat Christians better than lower class people in their own religion because we're white and they think we got money and they want to treat us nice. Racist. The church shouldn't be like that. We ought to be diverse. Because in Christ, our cultural differences go away. We're one. That's what the church is to be a picture of. But we failed in that. Why do we have messianic Jewish congregations? It shouldn't be that way. The church is Jew and Gentile together. That's the power of it. That's the power of it in terms of its testimony to the world, in terms of its testimony to the Jew. But we've thrown it aside. I love the fact that in Israel there's some godly Christian ministries made up of Jewish people that understand this and that seek to partner and worship together with Arab Christians, one body together, to show the world that in Christ these divisions go away. But we fail. But that's all. The, these things are all emphases of what was revealed to Paul for our instruction. The doctrine concerning the church is the emphasis of what he calls my gospel. You see, the gospel, the good news in its fullness is more than just eternal salvation. It's more than that. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16, 18? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's bigger than that. If Christ doesn't do that, then He's a liar. Then He can't be trusted. It's these things that are bigger that prove that what Jesus claimed about His death, burial, and resurrection was true. 
Because everything he prophesied came true. I will build my church. There are four things in this life that God preserves. And the Bible says it very clearly. Man can say what he wants to say all day long about what powers he thinks he has. But there are four things that God made, God built, and He preserves. And no man will destroy. Only if it's going to be destroyed, it's because God's going to destroy it. The first thing is this uh, present creation, the world, the earth. The Bible says God created it and He preserves it. He's reserved it unto a day of wrath. Not nuclear missiles. God's fire will destroy it. We can talk a big talk, but the fact of the matter is man can't destroy this planet. He thinks he can. Maybe potentially he can. But this planet will be destroyed when God's ready to destroy it. And God's got a fire that's far hotter than an arsenal of nuclear missiles. Second thing, God's Word. The Bible says very clearly that not only He inspired it, but He preserves it. And that's why despite countless attempts down through the ages for men to eradicate the Bible from the planet, they've proven unsuccessful. And the Bible, even today, in this, these days of apostasy, is still the best-selling book of all time. It was the first book ever printed on a printing press. More Bibles are printed than any other book. There's more ancient testimony to the biblical witness than any other ancient writing. The second most witnessed, you can count ancient copies on your fingers versus the Bible. God preserves it. It's still here today. It's still all over China, even though the Chinese government doesn't want it there. Why do you think governments are afraid of it? If it was just a stupid book, they wouldn't care. I don't care about all the stupid books in Barnes & Noble here in Hickory. I don't have to go on a crusade to protest it and try to say you shouldn't have that or go have a book burning. I'm not threatened by it because it's not just a joke. It's not real. And there is a lot of junk in there. I don't waste my time, but um, it's bigger than that. God preserves the world. He preserves His church. I mean, He preserves His Word. What else does He preserve that man can't destroy? Israel. Someone says, give me one proof that the Bible can be trusted. And the only word you need to give, or two words in the English language that you need to respond to answer that question, the Jew. The Jew. That's the proof right there. The survival of Israel as a nation, when you study that history, is a miracle that cannot be explained aside from the promises that God made and that He keeps His Word. We think you know, about Israel's rebirth as a nation in 1948. None of us have any clue about everything that led up to that. Going back to the late 1800s, the early 1900s, 1921, 1929, when the British lied. We love Winston Churchill, but Winston Churchill was a liar. Winston Churchill was part of the Great Britain going back on the promises it had made concerning Palestine, and as a result, there went the British Empire. The UK is a third-rate a third nation nowadays. Gone. But the fact that Israel is a nation today is a miracle. The fact that Brother Don and, and, and Dan could go over there and preach as bold as they did is a miracle. Because God preserves it for His purposes. The fact that there's 20 to 25,000 or 20 to 30,000 Jewish believers in Jesus the Messiah in Israel today is a miracle. 1948, there were 12. Now, 2017, almost 60 years later, 20 to 30,000. That's a miracle. Because when God makes something and He raises it up, 
He preserves it according to His plan and purpose despite men's attempts to eradicate it. And then the fourth thing that God preserves, the world, His Word, Israel, the church. I'm not talking about the institution of Roman Catholicism. I'm not talking about churchianity in buildings. What I'm talking about is the genuine remnant body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true church. Made up of born again believers. Not dead religion. That's churchianity. I'm not talking about all that. But going back to when Jesus built His church and it was born at Pentecost, there's never been a day in world history when there was not the presence of a remnant body of born-again believers organized as a church to carry out the Great Commission. It's always been there. It wasn't Catholicism. Typical church history courses when you go to seminary, they want to trace church history from Pentecost up to Constantine. And then from Constantine, it's all Roman Catholic history until the Reformation. And then at the Reformation, they trace Protestant history to the New World and say that's church history. There's nothing about Catholic history that's church history because it's not a church. That's anti-church history. And we don't realize that from Jesus all the way up to the days of Constantine and all during the Roman Catholic Empire and even after the Reformation when Protestants started persecuting true Christians, there was always a true church. Preaching the Gospel, preserving the Scriptures, doing missionary work. You know, faithful believers sowed seeds all over Europe long before Calvin or Luther were ever born. And if it hadn't been for that remnant, there would have never been that Reformation out of Catholicism. There's always been a remnant body. A lot of that history is written in blood, but it's there. It's there because God preserves what He makes for His purposes. The church is one of those. Jesus is the head of the church. Are we, do we give that topic any attention? Do we preach that at all? We should be. It's part of the gospel. We shouldn't be filtering Paul's epistles through the red letters. It's Paul's epistles to us, the church, that give us an understanding of the Gospels. They give us an understanding of Old Testament prophecy that show us what God's plan and purpose is for the ages and give hope. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14 real quick. This is in the context of speaking in tongues and women preaching and all this kind of stuff that everybody says is okay when the Bible's so clear. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37 and 38. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. What Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the commandment of God. We would do well to quit making excuses for it, to quit saying Paul was in a different culture, or you can't trust Paul, you need to read the Gospels. No, these are the commandments of the Lord. And if you don't believe God's Word in its entirety, then your heart is not right. Then he says, but if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. I remember preaching out here at Oktoberfest not long ago, and I confess I was, my motivations were a little improper. There's a guy that's a real big, huge... Martial arts big wig in this area. He's got a huge school. He got, has lots of students. He fancies himself some seventh degree black belt and some world champion. And, uh, just, it's, it's a joke. It's not real martial arts. And, uh, they, it's just a joke. But anyway, I saw him walk around at Oktoberfest. I don't know if it was his wife or his girlfriend and a couple of people. And um, One of these guys was preaching and the lady came by and said something about, you know, uh, Jesus is my Savior, not Paul. You guys need to quit 
concerning yourself with Paul's writing so much or something like that. And so I knew this lady was with this guy, so I immediately got really blunt with her about how foolish she was. And I did it in a way just to see if this bigwig would get his dander up and see what kind of man he really was. Of course, he stood there in his skinny jeans, and he never said anything. Never said anything. I mean, if somebody's talking to my girlfriend real blunt like that, I think I'd step up and say something, but he never did. But it was just a foolish reflection of this idea that Paul is something other than the uh, Word of God. I mean, that's crazy. This idea that we can pick and choose what is authoritative in this book. But it's, it's a common... That's why you have women preachers. That's why you have no church discipline. That's why you have all this stuff corrupting our churches and before you long you're thinking it's okay for homosexuals to get married. Because we haven't acknowledged that what the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul is just as much the Word of God as the rest of it. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's authoritative. And it's written specifically to us so we would do well to give attention to it. Second Peter. Peter does something here that we don't do as Christians. We get our panties in a wad and somebody offends us and we want to just come off. We want to hear anything they have to say. We know that Paul got in Peter's face and rebuked him at one time in their ministry. But look what Peter says here at the end of 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, 14-18. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, talking about the last days, the coming of Christ, be diligent that you may be found of Him in peace, without spot and blameless. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom. So Peter's putting Paul on the same pedestal as him and the other apostles. Also according to the wisdom given unto him. That means the wisdom came from God, the Holy Spirit. Hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do the other Scriptures... So Paul's writings are Scripture. They rest to their own destruction. It's funny that most false doctrine comes from resting away what Paul has written to the church. And that's what a lot of people do. Godly in a lot of areas of life and then you wake up one day and they supposedly have some Scripture from the Lord and it's taken out of context and they walk away from everything God's led them to do. It's dangerous. That's why we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Never apply it out of its context. Never ignore it. Be students of the Word doesn't mean be students of the Sermon on the Mount. It be, means be students of Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22-21. But my gospel, the third form of the gospel, is as relates to the building up of the church. That ought to be part of our preaching as well because it contradicts religion. It's a way to show that this is not religion. And then the fourth form of the gospel, the last one, is what we see here in Revelation, the everlasting gospel. Revelation 14, 6 and 7, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Not one time in the New Testament was an angel ever commissioned to preach the gospel. It always came by the mouth of man. When Cornelius was visited by the angel, the angel couldn't tell him the gospel. The gospel of God's grace. The angel had to tell him to wait for Peter to come. Then Peter would say it. Peter would communicate it. But here we have an angel after the church is out 
as Christ is getting ready to come back, this is toward the end of Daniel's 70th week, we have the everlasting gospel being preached. And it says it's preached to them that dwell on the earth. You've got this constant contrast in Revelation. You've got them that dwell on the earth versus them that dwell in heaven. In fact, one of the things that the beast, the Antichrist, blasphemes is not just God, not just Israel, but those dwelling in heaven. He blasphemes those. What, what person have we ever heard blaspheme those that have just died and gone to heaven? The word dwell there in the original language is the same connotation. It, it comes from the word that Jesus uses in John 14 for mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. That's what it, it, it comes from the same word. In fact, in the original language, it cross-references right back to what Jesus is telling the church. Those that dwell in heaven at the time of this book, those that are being blasphemed by the beast because he hates this entity, is the church. The church has been taken out. It's dwelling in heaven. And here we have that contrast again. This gospel is being preached to those that dwell on earth as opposed to what the beast has been blaspheming. This would be after the rapture of the church. But this gospel is being preached. Remember, you've got Jewish witnesses going to the end of the earth that have been saved. They're preaching. You've got tribulation saints, the, the gleanings of the harvest that are hearing the true gospel for the first time that are believing and paying for it with their lives. But then you've got this everlasting gospel being preached to all those that dwell on the earth, the nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, what is this gospel message, the everlasting gospel? What's the emphasis? Fear God and give glory to Him. Why? Because He so loved the world and sent His only Son? Why? Because He died on a cross? Why? Because He shed His blood for you? No, 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 no. Why? Because the hour of His judgment is come. And worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. What's the everlasting gospel message here? Fear God. Because He is the Creator and the hour of His judgment is come. That's a pretty powerful message. There's no cross. There's no blood there. There's a God who's a creator, who's full of wrath, and He's coming to judge the world. Fear Him. Is this a different message than what Jesus preached? No. Is this a different gospel? No. It's part of the gospel. By God's grace, repent. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved because the hour of judgment's not yet come. But it doesn't take away from the fact that God, Jesus Christ Himself, is more than just King. He's more than just uh, uh, Savior. He's more than just Head of the Church. He's the Creator. And one day, the channel of God's love, Jesus Christ, so loved the world. How did He love the world? He sent His Son. One day... That channel closes just like the door on the ark closed. And then the Creator comes and He judges. And His, right, His, right, His judgment is righteous. When I think about the emphasis of the everlasting gospel, I think in a sense of the gospel of John. What is the picture we see of Jesus? It's not just that He's King. It's not just that He's Savior. It's not just that He's the head of the church or the Son of Man. These things are referenced. They're all true. But the primary emphasis is that He's Creator. He is the Creator God. Jesus Christ is the Creator God. Are we preaching that? That's a form of the Gospel that deserves emphasis. 
Doesn't mean we shouldn't preach the grace of God. Doesn't mean we shouldn't preach Christ as the head of the church. Doesn't mean we shouldn't preach Christ as the Messiah of Israel. We should preach all these things. But the gospel in its fullness involves all of this. How can these things be ignored? The burden of the everlasting gospel here is not salvation, it's judgment. It's good news to the remnant of Israel in those days and to the tribulation saints declaring that their troubles would soon end and that the oppressor would soon be overthrown and that the Creator would rule and reign. Overthrow all wickedness. That's good news. Is that not good news? Amen. Is it not good news to look at where we are in this world today and see the homosexual mafia? I saw this stupid article this morning. It had to do with excavations that were being done in the old city of Pompeii that was destroyed by a volcano. And they, were, they found these bodies there of people embracing themselves. And they've always said they were women, but they did some scan that now says that these bodies that they found were, that were embracing each other were men. And because you had two men embracing one another during a terrible tragedy when people were dying left and right, they must have been gay lovers. That's a wicked mind that comes up with something like that. But that's what we dwell in. Pushing and shoving that theology and that worldview down our throats left and right. In, in, in the presence of all that, is it not good news that the Creator cometh and that the wicked will be overthrown? Is it not good news that the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God? We want to act like it's a bad thing to rejoice that judgment will one day come. That's not biblical. It says in Revelation that the judgment of the wicked is the patience and faith of the saints. It proves that there is a God that judges and there is a reward for the righteous. We want to act like the great white throne is going to be this place where we're out there boohooing and crying when we see people go to hell. No. The great white throne where the wicked won't even get to see the face of the one that cuts, cast him into hell. He won't even show his face. They don't even deserve to see his face. The heaven and the earth flee from his face, John says. At the great white throne, the saints are going to applaud because righteousness is done. Justice is served. That's good news. And I'm not ashamed to say it. And praise God for His grace that we can escape the judgment of God. How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 2.3 How can we say it? Do we deserve it? No. God is a furious storm, the prophet Nahum says. But He's also shelter from that storm to those that trust in Him. The judgment of God magnifies the grace of God in our lives. It all goes together. And it ought to motivate us to go out and preach the Gospel because we know God is judge. And we want people to get saved and escape that judgment. Jesus is the only one that can save us to God. He's the only one that can save us from God. Worship God as Creator. That's the everlasting Gospel. And friends, it's nothing new. It was proclaimed in the Garden of Eden down through the patriarchs, Moses, the prophets, and Jesus Himself. Let's look at a few verses this morning. Brother Gene, Luke 4, 8. Matthew, Matthew 22, 36-38. Daniel, Luke 12, 5. Jason, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. And Brother Don, I'll have you join us. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk 2, verse 20. This worship God as Creator 
is nothing new. It was preached by Jesus Himself. It was preached in the days of the patriarchs all throughout history. It's nothing new. Luke 4, 8. Worship God and Him only. Satan, Jesus preached the everlasting gospel to Satan in the, in, the, in the wilderness when He's tempting Him. Worship God and Him alone. Matthew 22, 36-38. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. Not just with our words, but with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's only one person in all of the Old Testament, despite all the people that God used, that was actually, it was actually written that that is what He did. His heart, soul, strength, and might. Who was it? What Moses, what Abraham. It's a little known king named Josiah, who despite all of that, he still died very young. That's not a bad thing. The Bible says that we ought to consider when the righteous perish that God's just delivering them from the wrath to come. We've got to have a heavenly perspective. But love God. That's the everlasting gospel. Right there in the Gospel of Matthew. Luke 12, 5. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Who's the him? Is it the devil? No, fear God and give glory to Him because He's got the power to cast into hell. Satan can destroy your body, kill your body. Men can kill your body, but don't fear them. Fear God because He can cast you into hell. That's where a lot of people get in trouble with Old Testament prophecy and, and, and revelation is they confuse the wrath of men and the devil with the wrath of God. The wrath of men and the devil that we've been promised as Christians living in this life. The tribulation of the men, of men and the devil we've been promised. We have to endure. We need to suffer. We need to take examples of those in the Bible that have suffered as an example. But make no mistake, the church has not been appointed to the wrath of God. And what we're reading about here, my friends, is not the wrath of men and the devil. It's the wrath of God. Even Antichrist is the rod of God's anger, it says in Isaiah. Even Antichrist is the wrath of God upon this world. It's the rod of God's anger. Just like Leviathan. The very last thing that God chooses to make a point with Job is not a crocodile. Leviathan's not a crocodile. Leviathan is spoken of in, in, in Isaiah as well. We see Leviathan in Revelation 12. Leviathan's a dragon. Leviathan is Satan himself. He's king of the children of pride. And God uses even Satan to make his point to Job. Put your hand on him. You'd do well not to even remember the battle that follows. You have no power. He could eat you up like that. He could destroy you like that. And yet God restrained him in Job's life. It's an interesting point. When you cross-reference Leviathan and Job with Revelation, we see that God even shows us that Satan is his instrument. Some of us can't handle that. God governs everything.
God governs everything. And Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Even Antichrist is the rod of God's anger. So there's a big difference between the wrath of men and the devil that we've been promised in this life and the wrath of God. And to me, that's a pretty important thing when we consider God's plan and purpose for the church and the rapture of the church. I don't want to get into that right now. But we've not been appointed to wrath. These are the days of wrath. Wrath of God and the devil. I mean, wrath of men and the devil is not the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is real. That's the everlasting gospel. Fear Him! Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That's exactly what the angel says there in Revelation 14. Aside from a few different words. Same thing. Fear God and keep His commandments because He's going to judge everything. It's nothing new. Nothing new. Habakkuk 2.20, brother. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Amen. <clears throat> God is in His holy temple. Let all the world keep silence. That's the everlasting gospel. There's a Creator God. And He is King. What He says goes. The authority. And it doesn't really matter what you think. You don't come to Him on your own terms. That's what religion does. It comes to God on its own terms. And all man-made religion has the same earthly father. His name was Cain. And they have the same spiritual father, which is the devil. Cain said, I'll come to God my own way. You don't do that. God even gave Cain a chance to make it right. It tells us there, God says, if, you'll do, if you do not well... If you do well, great. But if you do not well, sin lies at your door. That word sin there in the Hebrew is the same word used for sin offering. Sin lies at your door. Unto you it will be His desire and you will rule over Him. That's obviously in the context what we're seeing is that God... You know, Cain didn't even have to humble himself and go purchase a lamb from his brother. God sent, one to, God sent a sin offering to his door. And Cain would be able to rule over it. God even sent him the offering. And then Cain still gave God a giant middle finger. I'm going to do it my way. <clears throat> That's man-made religion. That's man-made religion. You don't come to God on your own terms. He sits in His temple, let all the world keep silent. What are God's terms? How did God love the world? By affirming homosexuals? And claiming that mothers who abort their babies are victims? No. God's... Grace shines on the just and the unjust, but God loved the world by sending His only begotten Son. That whosoever, a homosexual, a mother who's murdered her baby, whosoever believeth on Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. These things can be forgiven. Lives can be made new. New creatures can be born. Children of wrath can become the children of God through Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and His resurrection. That is God's love. That's the channel or the, jet or the, the, the uh, current of His love that flows through an ocean of His judgment and wrath. How dare we say we can come to God another way? The everlasting gospel. He is God. Fear Him. These four forms of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God's grace, what Paul calls my gospel, or the gospel as concerns the church, and the everlasting gospel... They're just different emphases of one giant good news message. That there is a God. 
that he came to redeem us, that he will rule and reign forever, that he's the creator, and that the church he builds has a special place for all of eternity. That's one big, giant good news message. Turn to Colossians 1 because I want you to see how Paul addresses all these forms of the gospel in making a point to the church at Colossae. We're going to start at Colossians 1 verse 10. He's writing to the church. He says in verse 10 that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. This is what Paul's writing to encourage the church to do. To grow in its faith. And then in verse 12, look. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into what? The kingdom of His dear Son. Here we have the gospel of the kingdom. A kingdom in which we've been translated by grace through faith and fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Who hath, Verse 14, Yet, he doesn't stop there. In whom we also have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Here we have the emphasis of the gospel of grace. Redemption through His blood. It's not just about a kingdom. It's redemption through His blood. Um, I just lost my place. Even the forgiveness of sins. And then look down. Who, 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 who is this Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, the Creator. For by Him, this is Jesus the Christ, were all things created that are in heavens and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things and by Him all things consist. The everlasting Gospel. The Creator. And then we get into verses 18 and 19. And He is what? The head of the body. My gospel, what Paul says. The head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have preeminence. Not just in the church, but in Israel, in His kingdom, in the creation, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And then we go back. Verse 20, And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, the gospel of God's grace. By Him I say whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. And you who were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled God's grace in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. Here we've got the gospel of God's grace transitioning back into Paul's gospel. That's the church. Holy and unblameable. The bride of Christ. The virgin bride of Christ. Verse 23, If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. What's been preached to every creature under heaven? the everlasting gospel, that there is a God. Creation preaches it every day to every creature. The uh, consequences of sin preaches it every day to every creature. The human conscience preaches it every day 
to every man. The gospel, the everlasting gospel, there is a God. There's a God. And then it goes on into verses 24. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for His body's sake, which is the church whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations but is now made manifest to the saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of His glory the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The church is that great mystery. That in addition to everything God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning Israel and the descendants of Abraham's seed, God had a plan and purpose for the church that all the nations being blessed in Abraham was more than just the Messiah coming and offering salvation to all men. It, was a, it involved building up a church of people from all nations the spiritual seed of Abraham. A great mystery. Verse 28, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to His working which worketh in me mightily. So Colossians 1 is interesting because it brings all of that together. And it shows the fullness of the gospel. These things that motivated Paul in all areas ought to motivate us in all areas. A hundred percent of our time ought not be out here preaching the gospel to the lost. Part of our time ought to be preaching to one another and encouraging one another and exhorting one another and building each other up and training each other so more can go out and preach the gospel. Our time ought to be spent worshiping our Creator. Worshiping Him. Our time ought to be spent remembering that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Those that pray for the peace of Jerusalem are blessed. How do we go out and share the gospel and not take opportunities to share the gospel with the lost sheep of the house of Israel when we have an opportunity? It's all full. And our motivation ought to be this entire chapter of Colossians, not just John 3.16. It's bigger than that. God's called us more to more than that. Too much is given, much is required. These are the four forms of the gospel. I wanted to take you down what I call the Jerusalem road to make a point. We all know the Romans road. How we can go through the book of Romans and clearly share the gospel. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth His Lord love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. And then we go up to Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. To verse 13. Uh, uh, Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, brethren. Romans Road. It's a great, easy way to share, share the gospel. But to Romans Road was nothing new. And there's something I like to call the Jerusalem Road. We can go to the Old Testament and preach the exact same thing. There's a Jerusalem Road that's good to use when sharing the gospel with Jews. We've got to show them why the New Testament is the Word of God. They don't come into it believing that. So we don't have to just take them to Romans, a book that they, don't, they haven't seen as God's Word yet anyway. Let's just go to the Old Testament, the same Bible that Jesus and the apostles preach, and the same message is there. The same message is there. When we go to the... I don't want to get into this because there's one... When we, go, when we use the Jerusalem road, we can easily show people from the Old Testament that all men are sinners, that there are consequences for sin, Good deeds cannot cancel out evil deeds. God requires a blood sacrifice. 
And then God promises to redeem His people with His own sacrifice. And that, believe on the Lord and thou shalt be saved. That's right there in the Jerusalem road. Maybe another time I can share those passages with you. Do you guys want to write fast? If you'll write fast, I'll give you the Jerusalem road. And I'll let you, I'll let you study these on your own time. And this is a great way to preach the Gospel from the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, and to share the Gospel Jews. All men are sinners. Psalm 14, 1-3. Psalm 14, 1-3, Psalm 51, 5. And then Ecclesiastes 7, 20. So here we have King David and King Solomon saying some pretty bold things. The same things that Paul says there in Romans 3. All men are sinners. Psalm 14, 1-3, Psalm 51, 5. And Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Number two, there are consequences for sin. All men are sinners. The first stop on that road. Number two, there are consequences for sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. God's ear is not heavy that He cannot hear. His arm is not short that it cannot save. But your sins have separated between you and God. He won't hear. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Psalm 9, 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. There are consequences for sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Psalm 9, 17. I've got to move. Good deeds cannot cancel out evil deeds. You guys know this passage, Isaiah 64, 6. Even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That Hebrew word is referring to dirty menstrual cloths. Not a washcloth that you wipe off your car with. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Good deeds can't cancel out evil deeds. And the sad thing is that's what the rabbis preach when their own Bible makes it clear that's not possible. Unbelievable. The blindness. It's a spiritual blindness from God. And we better be careful because that same blindness is resting on this country today when you look at the church and what pastors is preaching nowadays. Good deeds can't cancel out evil deeds. Isaiah 64, 6. God requires a blood sacrifice. Here's a couple of good passages. Leviticus 17, 11. Without the shedding of blood, no remission. Hebrews says that. Leviticus 17, 11. And then Exodus 12, 21-23 talks about the Passover lamb and how the blood had to be shed for the spirit of judgment to pass over. Exodus 12, 21-23. And then, the next point, God promised to redeem His people with His own sacrifice. God requires a blood sacrifice. And then the Old Testament shows where God promised He would, he would bring His own sacrifice to pay that price, to redeem His people. Genesis 22.8, Abraham spoke prophetically, God will provide Himself a lamb. Not Himself for himself a lamb. That's not what the Hebrew says. And the proof is the English Bibles translated by Orthodox Judaism that translate it just like the King James does. God will provide Himself a lamb. Himself as the lamb. Abraham spoke prophetically. You can show that to a Jew in his own language and it's obvious that's what's happening there. Isaiah 59.20 is a good passage here. On this Jerusalem road. Isaiah 59, 20. 
And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. The redeeming sacrifice is the Redeemer Himself. Zechariah 12.10, a great prophecy. Israel would look upon Me whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10. And then of course, Isaiah 53. Particularly verses 5 and 6. Very important. This is the Gospel of God's grace. This is the Gospel. But He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to His own way, and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, as, they, as the Hebrews say, Yeshayahu nun gimel. Isaiah 53. Most Jewish people never even read that chapter. And they know it's talking about Jesus when they read it. One old man in South Africa read it and says, I know this is talking about Jesus, but you realize I can never believe that. I would be disowned by my family and my people. I wouldn't be Jewish anymore. What reasoning is that? Unbelievable. And then finally on the Jerusalem road, believe on the Lord and thou shalt be saved. Joel 2.32 Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what Paul's quoting there in Romans 10.13. Joel 2.32 Isaiah 45.22 Look unto me and be ye saved all the earth, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Back in Isaiah 43 it says, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. So not only is God the only sacrifice that can save us, but besides Him there is no Savior. So it amazes me that the Mormon or the Jehovah's Witness would say Jesus is the Savior, but He's not God. God says in Isaiah 43 that beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 45.22 and the last one would be Zechariah 13.9. That's a good one as well. Zechariah 13.9 that's where we find, in Zechariah, we find a lot of the prophecies specific about Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Zechariah 13.9 Believe on the Lord and thou shalt be saved. Guys, the message of the New Testament was nothing new. It was a new... It's funny how God promised Israel He would give them a new covenant in Jeremiah 31.31, 31, a Berit Chadashah. And I love offering the New Testament to a Jewish person because show them Jeremiah 30. God said He would give you a new covenant. And what's written on the front of this? Barit Chadashah. The same words that are in Jeremiah 30. This is what God did what He said He was going to do. A new covenant. Because the old covenant pointed to its fulfillment in Messiah. This is a Jewish book. And so everything that this new covenant says doesn't change anything. It fulfills it. And the same message preached in the Old Testament is preached in Romans. So... It just proves that these, this gospel is from eternity past. God never changed His mind. God never changes His mind. He changes His way, but He doesn't change His mind. He never changed His mind about overthrowing Nineveh. He did it. So much so that we scholars doubted for years whether this, this, the Old Testament could be trusted because there was no archaeological evidence that Nineveh ever existed. And it really wasn't that long ago when Nineveh was finally discovered buried in the sands in modern-day Iraq. And the Bible was right all along. 
But God never changed his mind about overthrowing Nineveh. He just changed his way and decided to wait 150 years. But in eternity, what, what's the difference? They, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And instead of being overthrown in 40 days, they were overthrown 150 years later. The prophet Nahum. But God never changed his mind. He changed his way. God's never changed his mind about the gospel, about what's true. He never changed his mind about the plan and purpose to do by raising up a nation of people, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He never changed his mind about what he purposed to do with his creation. He's never changed his mind about what he's purposed to do with the church. And he's never changed his mind about what he intends to do with judgment. He's been patient. He's changed his way. God's going to overthrow this country. This country's just a drop in a bucket, according to God. I don't care what constitution we have or how many nuclear missiles we have. God will overthrow this country. Every nation in the United Nations has already signed its death warrant. It's already signed its death warrant. Because God, what's the first place in the Bible that's called holy? What's the first thing called holy in the Bible? A man? God? It's a piece of ground. A piece of dirt. Because with God, it's always been about a piece of dirt. God has a plan for a piece of dirt. And He's going to fulfill it. And every nation sitting on the United Nations has already signed its death warrant by virtue of its attitude about this piece of dirt in the Middle East. So this nation's already signed its death warrant. Will God be merciful? Will He change His mind about the United States? No. Will all of this make America great again happen? No. But may God be merciful and change His way and delay our judgment? Possibly. We can pray for that. That's why we should pray for our president. That's why we should continue to pray for an open door. That, that's why we should pray that this man would be turned to righteousness. I think there's more hope of someone like him than there is for a devil like Obama, just for various reasons. But we should pray for these things, that God would be merciful to our nation like He was to Nineveh, but it doesn't change the ultimate fact. But we've been given an open door just by virtue of this recent election, and we better take advantage of it because it could slam shut just like that. Just so like our brother who had an open door to preach the gospel boldly in India. He comes home, he goes back, and the door shuts. Can't go back. That'll happen to me one day, unfortunately. So we better take advantage of what we've got. There's another gospel that I wanted to address. And I know I'm running a little bit long. It's what's called another gospel. You see, we've got the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God's grace, the gospel, my gospel, what Paul calls in terms of his revelations concerning the church and the everlasting gospel. But make no mistake, there is another gospel. Another gospel. And this other gospel, this other Jesus, is a perversion of the gospel that we've declared today. It's a perversion of the true gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel of the kingdom. It's a perversion of the gospel of God's grace. It's a perversion of the good news concerning the church. It's a perversion of the fact that there's a Creator God who will judge. At the heart of this other gospel is judge not, that you be not judged. A twisted perversion of Jesus Christ's words in a seductive form. What is the theme of this other gospel that we need to be careful about? Faith is not sufficient to salvation, nor able to keep or to or perfect. It's a works salvation that demeans and lightly esteems the blood of Christ. Just like Cain 
lightly esteem the blood of the sacrifice. A gospel that mixes faith with works. A gospel that denies or explains away the promises of God. And a gospel that says that faith is not sufficient is the other gospel. Abraham believed God and it counted to him for righteousness. We all know I'm not talking about intellectual consent here. You know what I'm talking about. I don't have to define faith for you because you know what it is. But Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It's never been any different for anyone else in any other period of time to believe God. Believe on the Lord and thou shalt be saved. But another gospel perverts these things and it has many seductive forms and it has taken over churches. Real quick, Galatians 1. I don't think I'm going to break Matthew's record for long sermons. But if I can get through this, this will be a great stopping point and we can proceed through the text next time. Next Sunday, we're going to have... You need to make an announcement about that, maybe. But uh, we're not going to be in Revelation, I don't believe, next Sunday. Okay. Galatians 1. 6 through 12. Look, look, look at this. We'd, be, we'd do well to read this stuff. I marvel. He's writing to the Galatians who heard the truth. He, Paul preached the truth, emphasizing everything we've talked about this morning. These people should have known better. I marvel that you are so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto what? Another gospel. Which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So even Paul said, even if I start preaching something else, or an angel, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul said, watch out for the other gospel. Let it be accursed and let those who preach it be accursed. That's pretty strong language that doesn't fit our modern day worldview concerning what love is, right? Look at 2 Corinthians 11. Not only to the Galatians did he warn, he warned the Corinthians as well about those who would come preaching this other gospel. 2 Corinthians 11.4 For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you, will, you might bear well with him. So Paul was you know, you know, talking to the Corinthians about how they weren't receiving what he was preaching, and that they would, if somebody came preaching another Jesus, another gospel, they'll buddy right up to them and believe them. Another Jesus, another gospel. There is another gospel. There is another Jesus. We need to watch out for this. It's a gospel that mixes faith and works. It's a gospel that denies the blood. It denies the sacrifice, the propitiatory sacri sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ to pay the price for our sins before a holy God. It denies the sovereignty of God. It denies creator governorship of God. This other gospel. It, it takes Jesus and makes Him my homeboy instead of my Savior and my God. It's an attitude other than what Thomas had when he was confronted with his unbelief 
and saw the holes for himself, he fell prostrate and said, My Lord and my God. The other gospel demeans all of this, and it's rampant in our churches. The other Jesus is what people worship in their minds in this country, calling themselves Christians. And this Jesus they fashioned in their minds satisfies their own lusts and pleasures. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. This is the other gospel. It has one earthly father, Cain. It has one spiritual father, the devil. It's what Jude calls the way of Cain. Watch out. Watch out. Hebrews 9.14 I'm going to get to this stopping place. Hebrews 9.14 How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's the blood that purges. It's not the purgatory fires. How in the world could you say a Catholic is a Christian? When for a Christian it's the blood that purges. For a Catholic it's some purgatory fire that does. How in the world could you say the Pope who takes that garbage is a Christian? That's another gospel. The blood is what purges. And a gospel that denies or demeans the blood is not the gospel as we've preached. It's not the gospel of the kingdom. It's not the gospel of God's grace. It's not the gospel given to the church for the building of the church. It's not the everlasting gospel. It's another gospel. What should be our proper biblical response to the false gospel? Should it be to buddy up with people? Should it be ecumenism? Should it be loving on them? Or should it be what Paul says there in Galatians 1? Let him that preaches this be accursed. Or should it be what Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. That is the proper biblical response. I don't care if it doesn't satisfy the world's interpretation of judge not that you be not judged. The pop, proper biblical response of the church to the other gospel is to re, have no fellowship and to reprove and rebuke. That's what God says to do. And if we understand the context of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about hypocritical judgment, we'll see that there is no contradiction there whatsoever. Our response ought to be, let it be anathema versus what we see today in the churches. What do we see all this buddying up with Islam? I mean, my background is Southern Baptist. I served with the IMB. There's a lot of things I love about it. A lot of great missionaries still serving the Lord. But when the head of the IMB and the ethics whatever he is with the Southern Baptist sign on a legal brief with a Muslim mosque to fight for their defense to build a mosque in a community that didn't want it, that's abominable in my opinion. That is not a biblical response to a false gospel. A biblical response is to have no fellowship but to reprove it. Why don't you get up off your pedestal that you sit on and use it as a sounding board or a pulpit to preach how wicked Islam is? Instead of buddying... How in the world do you go... Yes, we value freedom of religion. It gives us freedom. But nowhere are we called to partner or fellowship with those who preach a false gospel. And Islam is a false gospel. The Jesus of the Quran is not the Jesus of the Bible. And Allah Himself is not God of the Bible. Muhammad said that he didn't even know what God would do with him when he died. Is that who you want to follow and trust to have revealed to you the right things about God? Because he didn't even know what God would do with him when he died. That's a joke. 
Abraham did not offer up Ishmael on Mount Moriah. The promises were not given to Ishmael. He's the child of the flesh. Yes, he was blessed. Yes, he had descendants. But just like Genesis said, he and his descendants would be a wild man and their hand would be against everyone his brother. Constantly fighting, 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 fighting. The descendants of Ishmael, primarily Islam today, are exactly what God said they would be. But the promise was to Isaac. And the things God said to Abraham, He said to Isaac, and then He said to Jacob. They go, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the children of Israel. Ishmael, cast out the bondwoman. Islam's a false lie. It's, a, it's false. It's a lie. And our response ought to be to reprove it. Not support it. Not stand alongside it. There's a, there's a, a story in the Old Testament where the righteous King Jehoshaphat went into an alliance with King Ahab of the north. And they went out to battle. And they, In fact, their families ended up intermarrying and it resulted in a lot of bad things happening in the southern kingdom later. And it resulted in the messianic lineage hanging by a thread if God hadn't intervened to stop it. It's the reason why Matthew doesn't list three kings from the southern kingdom in his genealogy of Christ. Because of this meshing together of righteousness with wickedness. And when Jehoshaphat came back to the land in 2 Chronicles 19, he was approached. And he was rebuked by God's prophet. Shouldst thou love them that hate the Lord? I'm going to read it because I don't want to misquote it here. 2 Chronicles 19. I know I'm rambling on. Forgive me. This is another one of those sermons I didn't feel prepared for. And Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned to his house in peace in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. God judged the king for helping the ungodly and loving those that hate the Lord. And yet we think that's the love Jesus is talking about in the New Testament. And we don't love our brother in Christ. We disagree with him or we're uncomfortable with his bold preaching, so we'll hate him and we'll stand alongside the wicked to rebuke him. Those that do that don't know the love of God. They don't have Jesus Christ. The preaching of the cross is foolishness because they're blind and they're perishing. It's a great litmus test. But that ought to be our response. What is our message today as the church living in this time between Daniel's 69 and 70th week, living here as God is continuing to build His church and using the church. What is our message? It's very simple. Acts 16.31 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But as the time draws near, that message ought to also involve fear God and believe upon His Messiah because His judgment's coming. And when it comes, you cannot escape. I don't like to preach, preach the Gospel publicly anymore without at least mentioning the coming of Christ. Without at least mentioning the Jew because I mean, there may be Jewish people out there and preaching Christ as a Messiah. Without at least emphasizing that this Jesus is more than a servant. He's God Himself. And I think we can... Learn from that model that Paul gives us in Colossians 1. To preach the whole counsel of God. Not to be satisfied with a part of it. Men reject our message today. They reject the gospel of God's grace today. 
what will they do? They're going to reject the angelic message right here in Revelation 14. Fear God and keep His commandments. I mean, fear God because His hour is coming. They'll reject it even when an angel preaches. And they'll still be gathered to overthrow Christ at Armageddon. They will not believe even though one rose from the dead. Remember the rich man went to hell and he said to Father Abraham, if you'll just send me back, I'll tell him. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Yeah, they have Moses and the prophets, but if I can go back and tell them about this place, they'll believe. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if somebody rose from the dead. And that's an indictment against every human being born in sin that's bent on rebelling against God. If you don't believe what God says here, it doesn't matter what miracle you see. It doesn't matter what experience you have. You won't believe because your heart is hard. Just as they had, they had Moses and the prophets, the brothers of that rich man, so do we. And if we're looking for a sign, we're looking for a miracle to confirm stuff, we'll always have a reason to explain it away. The wicked will always have a reason to explain it away. They're not going to hear us now. They're not going to hear the angel. But we don't preach because we... We, don't, we aren't motivated by results. We're motivated by obedience. You know, Jesus Christ is glorified whether men accept the gospel or whether they reject it. He's glorified. He's glorified in the salvation of men and He's glorified in the judgment of men. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. Out of every... He brings many sons to glory. The Bible says in Hebrews that He tasted death for every man. And the context there are the descendants of Adam. You can't say every man is only the elect. He tasted death for every man. The context, the sons of Adam. But out of every, He brings many sons to glory. The fact that He tasted death for every man, it benefits Him. The atonement benefits Him. He is glorified because He tasted death out of, by, for every man. And He's glorified by, by that out of every He brings many to glory. Let's praise God that by His grace, we're not every man, we're e many out of every. Praise God. It's all about Jesus. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of God's grace, my gospel as Paul referred to it, and the gospel of the everlasting gospel is all about Christ. It's all about Messiah. It's all about King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who we follow. And that's why he said what he said to his disciples before he gave his great commission. We always say, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Verse 19, Matthew 28. But anytime we see the word therefore, we ought to pause and ask what it's there for. And we need to back a little bit up. Verse 18 is forgotten. But it's what ought to motivate us to preach the gospel. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. Why should we go? Because we have to. No, because we want to, not even that, but because Jesus, the one we preach, for whom we are ambassadors, has all power and all authority on earth. That ought to be enough motivation right there to go out and share the gospel. And if it's not, we've got a problem. Amen? Anybody have any questions about any of that? Next time we'll go into the text more. The next verse, we, we have another announcement. The world system, the world system that's a burden to so many of us, Babylon starting with the days of Nimrod, the Tower of Babel, the Babylonian Empire, all the way to today. The UN, the UN is Babylon. It's the spirit of Babylon, the world system. Guess what?
There's a day's coming when it'll be said, the world system has fallen. It's fallen. And that too is good news.